it's uh, another month, yeah. another book. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I think this month is uh, Deep Work uh, by, by Carl Newport. Yeah, um, yeah, no, it's an interesting book. Um, I think it's one of the easier books to read. Not that it's a short book, but mm. it's one of the, like, it's quite a... Free flowing, free flowing is good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I did uh, actually enjoy going through this. Not that I haven't enjoyed the other books. <laughs> yeah, um, I think we've enjoyed all of them. Yeah, uh, I think Black Box Thinking still remains uh, my thorn in the back. I still need to <laughs> go back and probably read it. Like, uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, I did uh, get through most of deep work. I think there's just a few sections that I didn't look at deeply. <laughs> But I did, uh, yeah, I did enjoy it. And I think it's a mm-hmm. um, very insightful book. Um, mainly involving around deep work, which I think we'll unpack uh, yeah. as we go through the discussion. I um, think people will get tired of the word deep work, <laughs> deep work by the end of it. Uh, yeah, but uh, I don't know if you'd like to kick us off with an introduction there. Yeah, sure thing. Yeah, so obviously the book um, is Deep Work. And the subtitle to the book is Rules for focused success in a distracted world. And as Peter mentioned, it's by Cal Newport. So the book summary is essentially deep work by Cal Newport is divided into two parts. The first part is titled The Idea, and it goes on to explain the difference between deep and shallow work. So deep work is a professional activity performed in a state of distraction-free concentration that pushes your cognitive capabilities to their limit. These efforts create new value, improve your skill, and are hard to replicate. So he puts that on page three. And then that's opposed to shallow work. So shallow work is non-cognitively demanding logistical style tasks, often performed while distracted. These efforts tend not to create much new value in the world and are easily to, easy to replicate. So he puts that on page six. And part one looks at convincing the reader that deep work is valuable, it's rare, and it's meaningful. Mm. And through this, Cal is building the case for the deep work hypothesis. So the deep work hypothesis is the ability to perform deep work is becoming increasingly rare. And at, a, and at exactly the same time, it's becoming increasingly valuable in our economy. As a result, the few who cultivate this skill and then make it a core of their working life will thrive. So that he puts on on page 14. Um, And then that's part one of the book. And then the second part of the book is titled Rules. So this shifts focus to um, to a set of four rules aimed at helping one develop the ability habits and mental strength to do deep work. Mm. These rules are are work deeply, embrace boredom, quit social media and drain the shallows. Then each of these, then um, for each of these rules, he discusses a set of strategies to help you stick to the rule. Mm. And then by cultivating the ability to do deep work, one is able to take advantage of that deep work hypothesis. Mm. And that is those who cultivate the skill of deep work will thrive in the information economy. And so, in essence, the ultimate goal of this book is to develop one's ability to go deep. Mm. So, yeah, that's the overview. I don't know if you want to add anything there, Peter. Yeah, no, I think that's pretty straightforward, you know. Um, yeah, it's 
laid out as you've said it. Yeah. You know, I think there's. I don't think there's anything else I can add to that. Uh, I think maybe we can just dive into it and just discuss the different sections, and then from there, yeah, see what we can bounce off each other. So. Yeah, I think that'll be great. So just to to reiterate the summary, there's the two parts. Yeah. Um, part one being the idea where he's motivating for it, and part two being those different rules. Yeah. And so yeah, let's let's dig into them. Um, but maybe first before we dig in, let's look at the introduction. Yeah. Um, so the introduction kind of just covers the stuff we already touched on in the summary. So it touches on deep work and another sort of there's a few different terms that people can use for deep work but there's things like flow like people might have heard of the flow state and things Mm. like that that's almost somewhat synonymous with deep work and so the introduction is kind of just touching on what is deep work and how to view it and as opposed to shallow work um and he he starts to make a few different points and one of the things that he says is that indeed if you study the lives of other influential figures, both from distant and recent history, you'll find that the commitment to deep work is a common theme. Hmm. Um, and I mean, that's, I think it's fairly obvious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think uh, in his introduction, he references a psychologist who mm. uh, goes away to yeah, uh, Jung. Yeah, yeah, some cabin for his like deep mm. thinking, you know, and stuff. Uh, and yeah, it just explains of his ability to sort of shut off from everyone else and then mm. you know spend some time in solitude as he thinks you know and once back you know there's a shift in the productivity mm. um yeah so he does provide evidence of um instances where it works you know yeah, um various figures yeah. yeah and at the same time he he trusts it uh, to mention that um shouldn't be biased by what it says you know let's try and exactly you know, yeah. make our own decision on whether it works or not mm. but i should say like reading the book he gives a lot of examples that make you think and i mean for myself even reflect that okay there was once upon a time that my habits were similar to this and that used to happen you know, mm. and in a positive manner so yeah the introduction does um paint a clear picture of what needs to be done but yeah like i said i think we'll unpack most of it as we go through the different sections of the book yeah uh, yeah i mean it, it paints that picture of what the book is going to be covering but also it gives you that like you say that background of carl jung and his um i think it's the way that it's framed in the intro is his opponent sigmund freud and then he needs deep work in order to mm-hmm. um, be able to do this i don't know what a better phrase is but intellectual battle with him mm-hmm. and to be able to make these solid points and he realizes that oh that actually ha- he requires deep work he mm-hmm. probably wouldn't have called it that at the time but mm-hmm. but yeah um I, there's a phrase that that i really like from the intro mm-hmm. which um i'll just sort of randomly throw in <laughs> um which is that he talks about um so so one of the things in, in terms of shallow work that he mentions often is is email. Mm-hmm. And um he then based off of that, he mentions that we almost act like human network routers. Oh, yes. So <laughs> where um with shallow work, 
if you and later in the book he talks about how you can identify shallow work and, mm. and things like that but if you think about it um I'm pretty sure that most of us wouldn't want to be just considered human network yeah, routers yeah. in the fact that you send me a piece of information and I'm like, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll need to forward it through to Peter. <laughs> um, and then, yeah. But yeah, I, think, so I thought that was I a think the best phrase. one I saw was, I think, in one of his examples is when you get an email and then you forward it to your colleague and say, what do you think? You know, without, yeah. <laughs> without yeah. even putting in the work. And I think, as you said, uh, later in the ruse, uh, he does say one of the things of, you actually have to work in your responses. Like, mm. don't just throw a two-liner response, you know, actually yeah. st- state your case and add some value to the email and, yeah. you know, not just use it as a way to fish information from someone else, you know. Yeah, or to procrastinate on the thing. Uh, yeah. Just quickly respond Go and on, then, you know, know, I'll deal with um, it later, yeah. Put thought to it. So mm. I think that's really important, you know. I think that can change us from being human routers to actually adding value to this uh, info, information economy as he describes it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now you make some very good points there. Yeah. Um, and then um, maybe just as a conclusion for the intro is he has this idea that he goes back to over and over again, um, which is that a deep life is a good life. Mm. And so you'll, you'll see he touches that on in that idea part one idea section the last chapter there is about the value i mean the the fact that deep work is meaningful Mm. and he he again touches on that and we'll we'll chat through that again but yeah i think it's helpful to keep that in the back of your mind that the angle that cal is coming from is not just like cool deep work will make us a lot of money in this information economy but um, that deep work is actually meaningful. And that's mm. one of the core reasons why he he focuses so much on this deep work and he cares about it. Um, yeah. Mm. Cool. Cool. Part one, the idea. The idea. So I think let's dig into deep work is valuable. So that's the first yeah. um, section um, or the first section of that part. Mm. Um, yeah. So I think the I'll start off with with two reasons that he gives for why deep work is valuable. Uh, the one is page thirty five, and the other is page thirty seven. Mm. So page thirty five, he says that um, deep work helps you learn hard things quickly. Um, and then the other thing is that deep work helps you produce at an elite level. And then he sort of teases out these two different ideas. Because in the information economy, his sort of claim and based off of other people uh, is that in order to to be of of value, it's not the only way to be of value, but one of the, the um, ways of being of value is to be able to learn things quickly mm. and to be able to produce at an elite level. And both of those, his claim is that both of those require deep work. Mm-mm. Um yeah. Should we look into those? Yeah, um just to just before we get to that as mm. well, um I think he just he mentions the different groups as well. Um just a few pages before page twenty four of uh, the different types of individuals. Okay, yeah. Um mm. which is 
highly skilled workers, uh, the superstars, and the owners. And those three actually, um, those three have different levels at which they work. Uh, yeah, you know, and like you said, you know, the um, one thing that's needed is producing work at an at an elite level, which actually requires deep work. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I just wanted to add that on to yeah what you're saying, and um, also the 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 idea that we're in a new economy that's heavily pushed by information and mm. um he mentions the attributes that make us thrive through this and um i think they were actually introduced earlier in page 29 in a different wording uh which was the uh, the ability to quickly master hard things mm. and then the second part is the ability to produce and then and a little level in terms of both quality and speed mm. um yeah so yeah i think those are important points to sort of hold on to you know in understanding deep work and yeah i think how to apply it in our lives so. yeah what he calls the the two core abilities of thriving mm-hmm. in that yeah. new economy yeah mm-hmm. yeah i think let's let's dig through those um those three groups so i you mentioned the highly skilled workers um and essentially what he means by the highly skilled workers um from what i understand is that those are the people that can work well with machines. So again, this is obviously a biased, not a, a biased way. There will be bias and everything, but <laughs> this is a it's, it's a view on it. And he does touch on the idea that this is not the only thing that's valuable in the new information economy and that, but but these are helpful f- things to think through. Yeah. And so like you, you say, the high, the high-skilled workers, um, which are those that can work well with machines, those are the people that will thrive. Um, and I think there's lots of aspects to that. I mean, things like people think that the high-skilled workers are just the ones that are born magically genius and that. But there's a lot of sort of things to say that that's not actually the case. Mm. And his one of his arguments would be, again, deep work mm. is the answer. Mm. If you want to be highly skilled... Deep work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think in that section as well, he kind of mentions the drawbacks of automation in a way. Uh, and I think that idea is later tacked on um, uh, with uh, the guy that makes swords. You know, he... The craftsman. Yeah, the craftsman. Um, and the idea there is that that can be produced by having like a large presser that will press onto the metal to, to create a perfectly thinned out uh, sheet of metal. But um, as a craftsman, which in this case, um, using as an example of a highly skilled worker, he's able to hammer at metal, you know, up until it's in a perfectly mm-hmm. um, shaped out form in form of a... So and I mean he talks about how rewarding that is and yeah. how you know th- how positive that af- how that put positively affects people you know um, mm. so yeah um, like you said people that work well with machines not just machines themselves but operate them in such a way to produce high quality work um, mm. yeah. yeah yeah 
Yeah, and then I think going on to the next one that you touched on is the superstars. So a different way of putting that is those are the people that are the best at what they... um, What they do. Yeah, the best at what they do. Um, And I I really liked... um, There's a quote that he has from this person, uh, I think it's Rosen. And the quote goes... um, Hearing a succession of mediocre singers doesn't add up to a single outstanding performance. In other words, talent is not a commodity that you can buy in bulk and combine to reach the needed levels. There's a premium to being the best. And it seems that his point there is, again, if you manage to cultivate that deep work and become someone who is really able or is highly skilled mm. um, in their profession and stands out as being one of the, the top people in their profession, mm. it's, not, it's not the same as getting a bunch of people mm. and, and saying, well, I'm going to have these five people do that one person's work mm. and, and pay them basically... Their his salary divided by five, um, and intuitively, often we think that that's the case. We think that adding more people will be able to solve a problem faster. Faster, and I'm thinking especially of things like software mm. development and and that. But if you understand the profession, and I, I I'm sure this analogy carries over to other professions, mm. then what you begin to see is that when you have someone who's really highly skilled at what they do, that person is able to accomplish often a lot more than an individual. Mm. Um, than multiple individuals. Yeah, than, than multiple individuals, sorry. Um, and that's not to discount that other, there's another idea of the, um, something along the lines of an organization is more than the sum of its parts and mm. things like that. There's definitely is still that side of things, mm. but the, the value of someone who is really good at what they do is often quite remarkable. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think that's also what he's getting at there. With the, I think just point. to add on to that, I think, I think at a later point, he does talk about how to kind of be, superstar great at what you do you must have put in a lot of work and Mm. this is deep work so in terms of the superstar and that uh, statement you read um, what he's trying to say is that uh, if you've invested that much time you know to become a superstar you forever stand out than having two people that are doing the bare minimum and try mm. to do that same work. And in this case, in terms of performing, you cannot have two people produce a beautiful voice. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah it's a really good analogy. <laughs> you know, it takes one person that practices for long hours, you know, to master their craft or master their skill to the point that when this stand in front of the audience, you know, to sing beautifully, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. Um, like you said, there's more value in one skilled employee than, you know, two cheaper, mm-hmm. you know, newcomers to, to sort of accomplish that same task, you know. Yeah. Um, there's more risk 
as well when there's more people involved, you know, than someone that knows their work really well. Um, yeah. yeah. It's true. I always think with that uh, example uh, that you can use the counter argument of a choir um, and not having great singers in a choir, <laughs> but I still think that the point is useful. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Then he talks about the owners. Um, I don't think we have to discuss this too much because I yeah. think that the owners are more along the lines of the people who have lots of money and... Yeah. I'm not poor, but I'm also <laughs> not someone with massive amounts of capital. But I think his general point there seems to be that in the information economy, the scale is a lot larger and the um, sort of value you get for your capital is a lot higher. Mm. Um, and so if you have capital, yeah. if you're an owner, you yeah, I think can get a lot more if you invest. It's more of someone that has put in the work to make that money that's able to sort of identify through ex some sort of experience that, oh, this is actually a valuable venture and sort mm -hmm. of invest in. I think that's what the yeah. owner sort of signify. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because uh, he mentioned something along the lines of as well, digital technology means more labor more easily. Mm. Um, yeah, which I think is a, a fair point. Cool. Should we move on to deep work is rare? Yeah, we can move on to that. Cool. Okay, so um, in this chapter, he tries to explain um, why we end up distracted, yeah. even though deep work is valuable. And then <clears throat> he lists out a bunch of depth-destroying trends. Um, and yeah, I can run through those trends if yeah. you want. Yeah, so the depth-destroying trends are... I'll run through them all and then we can chat through them. Yeah. So the one is the metric black hole. The other is the principle of least resistance. The other is busyness as a paradox for productivity. And then the cult of the internet and bad for business, good for you. Um, I think those those first three are especially ones that I, I like to think through. Mm. Um, but yeah. So the metric black hole. Um that's from page 53. Cal uses a term that he, um, that, or it's a term that is used to describe the difficulty in quantifying the benefits of deep work with tradition, within a traditional business setting. So what he's trying to get at there is that it's good to be able to measure things and say, um, is this useful or not? Yeah. And then the metric black hole kind of hides that ability because in a complex information environment, it's difficult to identify exactly what is contributing yeah. to what. Mm -hmm. And so you have someone that's maybe, again, because we're software developers, writing a piece of software. It's difficult to identify exactly what was their contribution and how valuable was it because people pay for the general use of the software, yeah. not a specific feature. Hmm. Again, I mean, you could say, no, but you can quantify the use of that specific feature and stuff. But Yeah, well, I think one important thing or, or something that I thought of when I was going through that is, uh, for example, and I think it's a chat uh, me and my colleagues have had in the office before, that you might take hours to solve a problem, mm. have it written down to be like, let's say, 50 lines of code, then think through it 
again and then optimize it to maybe from 50 to 10 or even less lines. But then when you produce that work uh, in a pull request, they'll be like, how come you spent eight hours on this? Mm. You know, again, like with the that whole concept is that you can't quantify or sort of put a metric on time spent thinking mm. because it's it can actually turn into a he said he said type of thing because mm. someone will be like the number of lines of code does not equate to the time logged you know yeah. but in essence there's a lot of groundwork that needs to be done yeah. before you come up with a solution and the only tangible thing at the end of the day is the solution yeah. is the solution which is the lines of code you're producing mm. you know um yeah, so it's that thing where, and I think um, this sort of tie, ties in with the business. You know, you can either solve a solution in thousands of codes just to appear as if you did something, mm. or write efficient code that's in a few lines, you know, but might seem like, oh, you, you're wasting time. But mm. people forget what was the process behind you coming up with that elite solution, if I may. Yeah, yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a metric black hole is is just a an interesting idea that if essentially one shouldn't use it as an excuse for deep work. Yeah. Um because it's an illusion. Yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. Um okay then then tying on to that is the principle of least resistance. So in a business setting, without clear feedback on the impacts of various behaviors to the bottom line, we tend towards behaviors that are easiest in the moment. So that's the principle of least resistance. Behaviors that are easiest in the moment, those are the ones that we tend to. Um, and what's interesting there is how it ties back to the the metric black hole because the principle of least resistance is protected from scrutiny by the metric black hole Mm. because if we can't identify uh, some metrics to say this this is useful or not then what we end up doing is we just take the path of least resistance Um, and so i think that's another um, as he calls it depth destroying trend Mm. Um, so not falling into that metric black hole and therefore also not falling into path of the path of least resistance. Yeah, I think with that, I think I, re- I resonated with that because I think it was uh, uh, when I had my first job, something we used to talk about a lot, um, that as humans, we tend to go for the path of least resistance. Mm. But the, the problem with that is it actually takes you away from properly understanding what you're working on. Yeah, And I think having read this book that actually might be deep work. If you actually take the time to understand the problem and actually mm. come up with the solution, uh, you actually thinking critically about it. You invest in that time to actually understand what's going on without distraction. Mm. And then coming up with a solution that's actually concrete and actually covers all angles. But yet if you... And why deep work is rare... As humans, you, we always want the easy way out, which mm-hmm. is a path of least resistance. And we 
I think at the point I didn't understand that that's actually robbing us from deep work. Mm. I think having read the book. Um, so I think it's something that we need to think about carefully when <laughs> we're solving things. Mm. You know, um, I think for me, my takeaway is that try to take, try not to take that easy way out. You know? Yeah. Uh, and not, and I think that's in a lot of things, even in life. You know, uh, it's like finding a bag of uh, millions laying there <laughs> and you deciding to keep yourself for yourself. Mm. You don't understand how that money came to be, you know. Um, yeah, and what it might bring on your doorstep uh, for having taken it. So, yeah. Mm. Mm. I think it's also um, the, the idea of taking that path of least resistance it is the easiest thing to do, but I'm realizing now I'm one more similar to what you said, that if I really want to make meaningful progress mm. on things, I should actively avoid taking that yeah. that path. Because um, so if, if I think about when I face a programming problem or, or things like that, I'm very quick to be like, oh, is there a YouTube video on this or something? Because it's easy to watch the YouTube videos and they can be helpful at times, but I very rarely will read the the technical documentation mm. or things like that. Um, if I can avoid it, I'd rather like my, my order is probably something like stack overflow YouTube <laughs> or now it's just chat GPT. <laughs> um, and then like a last resort is the docs when it almost should be the other way around. Mm. Because if you if you read the docs and you understand them, that helps probably with a bunch of different issues. Mm. Um, it's not just solving the specific issue, but you're actually understanding what's the really happening um, and the underlying structures and things like that. So yeah, I think it's very dangerous to to go down that path of least resistance. And then also if we do do if we do go down that path of least resistance, I think our our days often become this chaotic mess of just an amalgamation of random meetings and things like that because we're not choosing to say I'm going to do something that I've pre-identified as meaningful um and tackle that. Yeah. Okay. Business as a proxy for productivity. I think that's a it's a fairly obvious one, but yeah. he says here, yeah, in the absence of clear indicators of what is meant to be um, productive and valuable in their jobs, many knowledge workers turn back towards an industrial indicator of productivity. I think that's a helpful way of putting it, an industrial indicator of productivity, which is doing lots of stuff in a visible manner. Mm. So if you picture <clears throat> maybe a production line, the workers that are doing a lot of of quickly assembling parts and things like that, those are seen as the productive workers. And in that situation, those are the productive workers. But we shouldn't transfer that to being like when we're doing knowledge work, yeah. busyness equals productivity. Um, and I think it's a very easy trap to mm. fall into. I mean, it goes back to that example I gave, uh, 50 lines of code as opposed to 10. You can want to submit the 50 lines because it kind of 
equates how much time you spent on it and kind of say, I was busy with this, mm. as opposed to 10 lines where everyone would be like, are you sure that took you that much time, you know? So, yeah, in our field, I think <laughs> the way to create that illusion is to produce more lines of code, whether or not mm. that affects other things down the line. That's, I think, the business paradox. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you want to go through the cult of the internet and the bad for business, good for you, but I don't really oh, remember yeah, yeah. the details can, of those. We can <laughs> skip those. Uh, I think the one is just uh, how the internet, um, the cult of the internet, I think uh, the introduction of like collaborative work and all that kind of stuff, how um, having instant messages and stuff is actually more destructive than... Uh, yeah. um, helps you focus and stuff um yeah i think it's just how the industry is moving towards all these ways of um the network tool idea of yeah increasing communication without understanding what impact it really has on Mm. uh, on performance like uh, i think that's when he introduces the idea of that consulting company that um was supposed to have um communication free days and everyone was worried because um they thought that would be really bad i think it, the yeah. idea was introduced there that it's better to be constantly connected than okay yeah, yeah. but yeah but yeah we can move past that i think that might be in a different one but we'll yeah, check no, it's uh, just discu- introduced it's discussed further down but it was first introduced okay. the idea yes, of yeah. it was first introduced yeah. here yeah Okay. Yeah, on the bad for business, good for you one. Also, I'm not, I can't remember exactly what the, the details of that are. Yeah. I think it says, yeah, if you believe in the value of depth, this really spells bad news. F- um, this really reality <laughs> spells bad news for businesses in general as it's leading them to miss out on potentially massive increases in their value production. But for you as an individual, good news lurks. The myopia of your peers and employees uncovers a great personal advantage assuming the trends outlined here continue so all of those different trends that we've discussed depth will become increasingly rare and therefore increasingly valuable yeah i think that's a a good way to end the idea that depth will as depth becomes increasingly rare because of this hyper connected world where distractions are everywhere um, it becomes more valuable. Um, and that is Economics 101. <laughs> cool. On to deep work is meaningful. Yeah, I really like this chapter because I think it touches on a core idea of why, why I care about depth at all. Um, because... Sh- Sure, maybe it allows you to produce more stuff, but is that the meaning of life kind of thing? Um, and I think that we he contrasts these ideas of, um, not, not in depth here, but he briefly contrasts the ideas of the information economy and the craft economy. And you chatted as well earlier about the, the information, I mean, the craft economy and there's, deep meaning in sort of making the sword and just working on it until it's crafted into that that um, perfect piece 
Um, but in the information economy, I think people think that that's not possible to get that meaning, mm. to get that like sort of, um, I don't know, almost this mind ability to execute in work. In other words, like learning your craft so well that it becomes second nature, or so to say. I think that people would would think that that's possible, mm. but what I think people wouldn't really necessarily think is possible is to find that like deep underlying meaning. Oh, so when you okay. like, if you're building, let's say you're building your um, a tool shed or something like yeah, that yeah. outside, you can do that almost like a hobby mm. because the act of building the thing is meaningful. Mm. The fact that there ends up being something as well afterwards is also great, mm. but just doing being involved in that activity is somehow rewarding mm. um, and building things and making things is, is somehow rewarding. Mm. And then in the information economy, people I think sometimes don't feel that that's the case. Mm. I mean, I certainly do feel that that's the case because I've always loved making things. I yeah. like building software and stuff like that. So, but yeah, but he, I think digs into, into some of those different ideas of why it is yeah. meaning or yeah why it is meaningful and he he says yeah a deep life is not just economically lucrative but also a life well lived mm. and that goes back to that introduction part where he's like he speaks about it's the idea of deep work and being part of a meaningful mm. life um yeah so in the deep work is meaningful section he goes into three different arguments for for why right. depth is meaningful. Mm. The neurological argument, the psychological argument, and the philosophical argument. Yeah. Um, should we go through those? Yeah, we can go through those. Cool. Um, okay, so I put here um, just a note to say, and, and this is starting with the neurological argument, that your world is the outcome of what you pay attention to. So I think there's a little part in the book here that, um, here we go. Uh, Gallagher, five, after five, so Gallagher is a, a person that he discusses and I think that she or he, I think it's a she, uh, wrote a book called Wrapped and Wrapped is a word for, um, I'm forgetting now. Uh, it's a focused I think it's the same sort of idea as focused, wrapped, R A P T, um, and uh, he quotes here Gallagher. Five years after reporting on attention, have confirmed some uh, some home truths. Um, among them is the notion that the idle mind is the devil's workshop. When you lose focus, your mind tends to fix on what could go wrong with your life instead of what's right. A workday driven by the shallow, from a neurological perspective, is likely to be draining and upsetting, even if most of the shallow things that capture your attention seem to be harmless or fun. Gallagher, in a book, concludes, I choose my targets with care, then I give them my rapt attention. In short, I live the focused life because it's the best kind there is. Um, yeah, so it's it's this researcher who 
who I can't remember something happened to her and then um she decided she was sick she was diagnosed with cancer and then had to go for treatments but yeah mm. <laughs> yeah and and then she decides after that like I want to try and understand this concept of mm. attention mm. um and looking at various things I think it all, it all stemmed from how despite all that there was so part of a brain which brought joy and whatnot mm. and all those kind of things. And she wanted to understand that even when you're going through the most traumatic or hard situation, how is it that you can find joy in like small things? And mm. I think that's when she uh, later discovered that it had to do in the way you, you, you can sort of train your mind to sort of... Um, focus on on the positive so um mm. and then there was one experiment where um she had two groups i think young people and elderly people and they were shown uh, positive and um negative images uh, yes. and like for the young people their brains certain part of their the part of the brain that has to do with emotions uh, fired up mm. in each instance. Yet with the older people, that section of the brain only fired up when they were shown positive images. And the advantages of this was like, it's not that you ignore the negative, but you only react to the positive. And that uh, actually has um, a positive effect. And it takes some level of concentration mm. uh, to sort of, or or as I think it's like, training to sort of mm. have that ability where you only focus on the positive instead of the negative and i think that ties in, in also with like with work you know for, like you said you enjoy doing what you do it's mm. like you draw positivity from your work instead of when you're given work have like a negative connotation to it because of your experience because we forget that experiences have a lot to do with how we feel about certain things. But as she explains that we can train our bodies or our minds to draw positive out of pretty much every sort of circumstance we find ourselves in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the, she, she touches on quite a few helpful things. Um, so one of the things um, as you were kind of going to is she says, or um, this is Cal taking her ideas and, and thinking through them. He puts here, we tend to place a lot of emphasis on our circumstances, assuming that what happens to us or fails to happen to us determines how we feel. According to Gallagher, decades of research, research contradict this understanding. Our brains instead construct our worldview based on what we pay attention to. So that's that idea of um, focusing on the, the positive things and, and that. Mm. We we think that our world is constructed by the circumstances that we run into, but in fact, it's the perception that we have. I think they use examples of the people in the wheelchairs and things. People, if you, if you ask someone um, about how they would feel if they lost their arm, they'd be like, oh, you know, I really wouldn't want to. to mm. But it actually turns out when you lose your arm 
people kind of carry on and they're actually surprised by how fine they are. <laughs> and then on the other hand, you give people a bunch of money, they win the lotto or something like that. People think that um, that's going to be the thing. If they could mm. just win the lotto, yeah. life would be good. Yeah. Um, but then a year down the line, we almost acclimate to the fact that we have this money and then kind of just carry on oh, with life. Right. And in fact, a lot of people end up worse off, it seems, because they don't know how to manage the money yeah. and all kinds of issues. But yeah, it's that circumstance versus attention. We think it's circumstance. Mm. It's actually what we focus on. Mm. Um, there's another um, quote here from, from Gallagher. So who we are, what you think, feel and do, what you love is the sum of what you focus on. And... I mean, that's to me just a great way to put it. Yeah. yeah, it's a great summary of stop thinking all these negative things and that. Um, there's reasons for doing that. But in general, if you find yourself going down that track, stop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but building on those thoughts, Kel says, um, Gallagher's theory, therefore predicts that if you spend enough time in the state of deep work, your mind will understand your world as a rich and meaningful, important mm. place. Mm. Because Gallagher is sort of getting at what we pay attention to is what our world is made up of, yeah. what our reality is. Yeah. Yeah. And so, therefore, it's sort of an obvious connection to make to say, if we do meaningful deep work our world be almost becomes more meaningful mm. which is just another that's like yeah that is a great <laughs> argument for for depth yeah. like yeah yeah i think even for that i don't know how if you already know it then ties in with um the psychological argument yes yeah you know? i think go for it um because it talks about i'll just I won't quote anything, but sort of briefly run through it where it talks about how um, through the, I think there was a research which they did and they were yeah, having, ESM having, experiments. Yeah, having people experience sampling methods. Yeah, write down how they feel at certain intervals and the at the end of the day, the sort of um, the conclusion from that experiment was that people's uh, sort of feelings are, are positive when they're doing sort of meaningful and mm. rewarding work. So if you doing nothing, you know, which again goes back to everyone always says, oh, I want to be on holiday or I want to mm. just laze around. That's not where people's happiness sort of comes from. It comes from actually doing something meaningful, mm. you know, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I just thought I'd tie that to what you'd really started saying. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, like a really great point because that neurological argument sort of tackles it from one point yeah. and that's the Gallagher theory and yeah. all of that. Then the psychological argument is just another layer mm. and then he, then there's the other layer of the philosophical argument. Mm. But just sort of going, going back to that um, uh, psychological argument that you're talking about now, that idea of the flow state mm. um, is from the guy, Mihai 
Chicksett Mihai. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Um, the and he wrote a book by that title, Flow, which at some yeah. point we should read. Yeah. But he, him, and um, this other person, Larson, did that experiment with the, the paging people. Maybe I'll just quickly read the um, sort of conclusion yeah. of it, yeah, yeah. which is on page eighty-three. It says at the bottom. ESM helped validate a theory that he had been developing over the preceding decade. The best moments usually occur when a person's body or mind is stretched to its limits in voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and work worthwhile. Csikszentmihalyi calls this mental state flow, a term he popular, popularized with his 1990 book of the same title. At the same time, this finding pushed back against conventional wisdom. Most people assumed, and still do, that relaxation makes them happy. We want to work less and spend more time in a hammock. But the results from Csikszentmihalyi's ESM studies reveal that most people have this wrong. Um, and then he, the quote from, I think it's the book, says, Ironically, jobs are actually easier to enjoy than free time. Because like flow activities, they have built-in goals, feedback rules, and challenges, all of which encourage one to become involved in one's work, to concentrate and lose oneself in it. Free time, on the other hand, is unstructured and requires much greater effort to be shaped into something that can be enjoyed. Yeah. And uh, I think the quote like that is in part why the book flow <laughs> yeah. and the idea of flow is so popular. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's very, all of these are very good points. Like yeah. he, Cal makes very strong arguments for, for why we should be doing death. Um, yeah, I've got one last, um, a quote for, for that, um, psychological argument, mm. which is to build your working life around the experience of flow produced by deep work is the proven path to deep satisfaction. Um, just another solid <laughs> point. Another solid point. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if you want to add anything else to that psychological no. one. No, I think we, that's fine. I think we can move on to the... Go on philosoph to the uh, philosophical one. Yeah. So another book that I think we should read is The All Things Shining by Dreyfus and Kelly. So apparently that's a 2011 book that explores the notions of sacredness and meaning um, and how they've evolved through the history of human culture. Okay. But he builds on on this, and I think this is in part where Cal gets that idea of the craftsman. Mm. Um, and so then um, f from, from that book, um, he draws out, um, he says, yeah, craftsmanship, Dreyfus and Kelly argue in their book's conclusion, provides a key reopening a key to reopening a sense of sacredness in a responsible manner. So I think the word sacredness is a good word. It's what I was trying to get at for when we were talking about the craftsmen mm. and them feeling this deep sense of mm. meaning. Um, so that's sacredness is just maybe a different word for that. Um, but yeah, I think the, um, the philosophical argument f for it is, um, it's just building on that idea of, of sacredness of this, um, of the craftsman. Mm. Um, yeah. 
I think he says here, as Dreyfus and Kelly explain, such sacredness is common to craftsmanship. The, the tasks of the craftsman, um, they conclude, is not limited to generating meaning, but rather to cultivate in himself the skill of discerning the meanings that are already there. This frees the craftsman of nihilism, um, of the autonomous, autonomous individual, providing an ordered world of meaning. So I think um, I might be missing some of the points that that is that are being made in the philosophical argument, but I think it, at its core, it's got to do with not just the fact that deep work is able to produce meaningful things, but it's able to reorient our attention, going back to the, the discussion we had earlier, it's able to reorient our attention towards the meaningful yeah. in a way, yeah, that we normally yeah, don't. So it's, um, it's, it's like a full circle thing. Remember, I think somewhere in the book, it talks about how at the moment, certain skills are being thought of as useless, but later down the line, mm. we'll understand the importance of them. And I think it's, I think in summary, what craftsmanship is. You know, you, you um, it might seem like you just killed at doing this one thing, but it's the satisfaction that comes from you having the ability to do that thing and how you can bet it over years yeah, and years. Yeah, that's a very years. good way of putting it. Um, so, and again, like the whole, at the end of the day, you kind of, even having gone through, like let's use that sword example, even having gone through the tedious process of making it, it's the fact that at the end you can be like, oh, look at what I've created. Mm. That's the philosophical um, you can be proud of that yeah, yeah side of it yeah yeah mm. nice um yeah i mean at, at the end <laughs> at the end of this chapter again i think he quotes um uh, i think this is where he starts to quote winfred gallagher that the rapt person mm. um and he says again <laughs> just quoting i'll live the focused life because it's the best kind there is um, and right at the end of the book, he closes the book with that. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and I think it's just, it's helpful to have these various different reminders, the, um, neurological, psychological, philosophical, mm. um, approaches to saying, why is this yeah. valuable? Yeah. Um, and you can look at it in any of those angles and see that deep work, mm. um, is meaningful. Yeah, I think just to go back uh, with uh, the craftsman side of things, there was this one thing, uh, one point I wanted to, to it's on page 89. Uh, I think it will relate to us. And just adds on to what I was saying, it says, beautiful code is short and concise. So if you were given that code, if you were to give that code to another programmer, they should say, oh, that's well written code. It's much, it's much like as if you were writing a poem. Yeah. From the pragmatic programmer. Mm. Uh, oh, no, that's actually not from the No, no. It's from just before, yeah. Yeah, just before. Okay. Yeah. That's true. Very, very true. 
nothing like some good code. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. So that's the first section done. Yeah. Part one, the idea. Mm. So we've gone through the idea of deep work. We've gone through why it's uh, meaningful, why it's rare, yeah. why it's valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, now we can dig into the rules. Um, yeah. So just again, those rules, they are intended to shift our focus um, to how we can start getting better at doing deep work and their rules to kind of guide us for saying, if you follow these rules, then you will be better at doing deep deep work. And then in each of those rules, there's strategies that, that he digs into for how do you, um, how do you make sure that you can apply that rule? Uh, these are the strategies, etc., for applying the rule. Okay, so quickly summary again: the rules are work deeply. The other one is, uh, oh, sorry, hold on, let me re retry that. Um, so rule one is work deeply. Rule two is embrace boredom. Rule three is quit social media, and rule four is drain the shadows. So we'll those are each little sort of chapters, and we'll we'll go through yeah. them one by one. Okay, work deeply. So there's six strategies he lays out here. So strategy one is decide on your depth philosophy. Then strategy two is ritualize. Strategy three, make grand gestures. Four, don't work alone. Five, execute like a business. And six, be lazy. Let's um, let's chat through those. Are we chatting through all of them or are we going to... I think we can just very briefly okay. briefly chat through them. So I think, um, yeah, deciding on the depth philosophy. Mm. So he has those four different depth philosophies, yeah. monastic, bimodal, rhythmic, journalistic. Mm. We don't have to dig into each of them in depth, but the the point that he's making is you should try and decide on your depth philosophy. Is it going to be one of pure isolation where mm. the way that you accomplish deep work is you just block yourself in a room and don't talk to the world? Or? More decide on the routine you're going to take for your mm. deep work. That's yeah. a good way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, so is it that lock yourself in the room or is it the sort of more rhythmic approach where you have set periods yeah. or is it a journalistic approach where you just, whenever you whenever get a chance. Whenever you feel inspired. I think that yeah. is an interesting one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and he does say that that's the one we should aspire to have in. I, th- I mean, I think, um, yeah. Mm. If if you're able to accomplish it, because he also yeah. mentions that that's a difficult one to get to yeah. because it requires you to be able to just... On command. Yeah. Switch from one context to the other, you know, from being distracted to straight on deep work. Yeah, and if we don't have that, if we haven't trained ourselves, it's not like some inborn ability, yeah, but if yeah. we haven't trained ourselves to be able to switch focus and be like, okay, cool, I'm I'm watching TV now, mm. and then it's like, okay, now I'm going to read the book and, and focus. If we haven't trained ourselves to be able to do that, we the journalistic approach is probably the wrong approach yeah, to take. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think he he he's kind of getting at, there's all of these different approaches, there's probably more yeah. to doing deep work, but don't choose the wrong approach yeah. 
Because if you, for example, try and choose the monastic approach, which is only suited to a fair small group of uh, yeah, a small group of people who are already sort of probably world class in their field and they can afford to say i'm gonna ignore the world to focus on this this, thing and i'll have enough money and all those kinds of things um if you choose that um and then you fail at it you'll feel defeated and you'll give up but instead if you rather choose something that's more achievable like setting aside an hour at the end of every day or something like that even though it's not ideal it works best because you still are, I think mm. he says, you still, in the one of the second, you still have a life to go back to. Mm. So you can, like you say, if you can't afford to switch off for, I mean, for instance, the uh, psychologist, he couldn't, um, how can I put this? Like set up um, throughout, let's say throughout his day to say, set aside an hour for deep work because his door was sort of open to to clients. Mm. He would always be distracted throughout the day. So he would have to block off chunks of time to do deep work, yeah. Yeah. And and I think that the the nice thing about the fact that there are these different approaches is I think of someone like... um, um, I don't know how completely blanked on his name the the guy who wrote Narnia um and a bunch of different famous uh, christian works uh doesn't matter but <laughs> I wanted to think of was C.S. Lewis but yes yes no it is it is C.S. Lewis it is C.S. Lewis I'm like how did I forget his name but anyway doesn't really matter one of the things that he apparently was very good at I think it was his son, his um, his late wife's son speaking about it or, or something like that, was that he he was, even though he, he was often writing and very focused on that, he, if someone wanted his attention, he was very good with pausing what he was doing mm-hmm. and giving them his full attention. Whereas most people would get frustrated and be like, uh, mm. get out of my space I'm trying to mm. concentrate and stuff like that and I think to me that there's something like very powerful there yeah. in being able to actually still be present for people and I think that would require more of that journalistic approach and it's a much more difficult thing and I don't think it's always the perfect perfect way to approach it but yeah I like that ability to to be able to focus deeply on something but still if, for example, your child is knocking on the door, then you can still give them attention, mm. and because you don't want to be like you don't want to just ignore them, um, yeah. But, but yeah, different approaches to to depth philosophy. Okay, should we go on to the ritualize mm. strategy? So at the be- right at the beginning of the ritualize one on on page one one seven, he says an often overlooked observation about those who use their minds to create valuable things is that they're really hapa- their their work habits are rarely haphazard um yeah i think it's pretty much as, as straightforward as that don't mm. don't fool yourself into thinking um i'm going to do xyz when inspiration strikes yeah. because yeah there's a funny quote uh, from it's not this book, but different book where 
the someone says um that, that, so they're a, a writer and then they say um I wait for inspiration to strike and inspiration strikes at 8 a.m. every morning or so, something along those lines because yeah. the the point is that they always that's when they're going to sit down mm. and that's when they're going to work mm. and doesn't matter what happens mm. um, it has to, yeah it's going to happen then uh, i think uh, with uh, the ritualized section the the one thing that actually oh what i thought of was actually atomic habits it's make it okay. obvious Yes. <laughs> you know, you have to say if you want to read, remember it was like put the put book, the book yeah. on your bed with so that before you sleep. So it's the same thing with this, that you need to sort of form some sort of routine or even if you even want to at least see it as a whole compounding effect, you know, mm-hmm. that if I do this, then I should do that. Mm-hmm. So, and I think, Deep work is a compound or something because if you think about it, it's like, what will I work for? What will I work on and for how long? It's yeah. like I need to work for on something and that's yeah, you know set that time and then you're more likely to, to do, do it. it yeah. You know, um, where you start to work, you know, um, yeah, where you work once you start to work. That's like mm. another thing. Like you need to identify certain things and like you say, it does it inspirational strike at 8 a.m. Yeah. You, know, you have to know that at 8 a.m. I'm at my desk working. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you need to be disciplined about it. In other yeah. Words. yeah. Um, no, that's yeah. a very good tying together. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it often, a lot of these things come down to habit mm. and trying to make sure that you form those habits. And in order to form habits, rituals are, are very helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, next is grand gestures. Grand gestures. Okay, so I, I don't really have too much to discuss in this one other than just the the general idea of when one makes grand gestures, then you are more likely to um, follow through. Follow through. Mm. And they use the J.K. Rowling example on that. I should say, um, <laughs> in reading this, the, the gestures are actually very odd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because there was like, the, I don't know if you, the, the guy that took a flight to Tokyo and back, yeah. he just had a coffee and then and 30 hours and boom, he had a manuscript. Like, mm. Yeah, and for J.K. Rowling, booked an expensive room in a hotel across to what inspired Hogwarts. And like, yeah. you know, all, yeah, it's very odd sort of, but I guess it's, and I, I think I sort of understand it. It's the whole thing of where, when you, for instance, actually, who would turn this around to us? Um, it's like, you know for a fact that you're paid for the subscription for the podcast. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like we have to read and have something out every month. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> I was going to say that I think that this chapter is one of the ones that least apply to me. But then you just said that and I'm like, oh, wait, I did do that. And then, yeah. No, I think, I think it, those grand gestures can be very individualized, but I think they are... They can be helpful. Yeah, I um, think as you, strange as they are. <laughs> very strange. That's what I yeah. say. Probably you're not looking at strange patterns in your life. That's why it slipped through. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. That's a good one. Yeah. 
Um, okay, then there's Don't Work Alone. Um, yeah. yeah, I think. I, I think that one was, um, when he introduced it, it was like, this might seem like it's defeating the purpose. But I think it's um, it's the Robert Ducky approach. You know, where, you know, we always say if you're stuck with a problem, go into a bathtub, speak to Robert Ducky, and then you uh. might get inspiration. It's just that in this case, the Robert Ducky is another human. Because if you really, if you pay attention to what they actually said, it's like these people were actually interacting with people that are not in the same field as them. You see, it was mm-hmm. like, I'm coming to you to be like, this is how I'm thinking about this. And someone will be like, I approach things in this way, so maybe try that approach. Yeah. You know, so it, and I think he then further clarified it to say, it doesn't mean when you're in this sense of deep work, have someone there with you. It just means, remember, it was like, you have those isolation, those moments. Yeah, the have iso- spoke approach. Yeah. yeah, those moments in isolation. But once in a while, you when you pop up for air, you sort of say, oh, James, what's going on here and there? Mm-hmm. And then through that conversation, something sparks and then you're back into your corner. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's just um, thinking critically about it, you know, and not just throwing in there that, uh, you need to, I think it's, how can I put this? It's not as it sounds. <laughs> it's mm. it's not, uh, it doesn't say you don't have to be alone when going through deep work. It just means that it's good to bounce your ideas with someone, mm. you know, because you might actually be going through the wrong path and then you might just need someone to reel you back. Um, that's just how I, I thought of it. Yeah, I think on, on page 134, he gives two guidelines there. He says, first, distraction means distraction remains the destroyer of depth. Yeah, yeah. Therefore, the hub and spoke model provides a crucial template. Separate first the pursuit of serendipitous encounters from your efforts to think deeply and build on these inspirations. And then second, even when you retreat to the spoke, to think deeply, when it's reasonable, leverage the whiteboard effect to do so. And I think the whiteboard effect is just kind of um, everyone gets in a room and yeah. kind of um, collaborates on, on ideas. The the thing that I picture in, in my mind um, for this don't work alone is peer coding. Mm. So I think peer coding is a, a helpful example for me because it's sort of saying... You sit in a room, you're trying to solve a problem with someone and you you don't want to waste their time and they don't want to waste your time. And so you basically end up collaborating mm. to be very effective. Mm. It doesn't quite cover the whole idea of um, interacting with people from different environments and things, but yeah. Mm. Cool. Okay, then execute like a business. Um, they give those four... Uh, there's the four 4DX, um, which is the four disciplines of execution. Focus on the wildly important, act on the lead measures, i.e. not the lag measures, keep a compelling scoreboard and create a cadence of accountability. I don't think we need to dig too much yeah. into those, but yeah. Then the last strategy for 
this um, rule one, working deeply, is to be lazy. And I think that that's a super counterintuitive one, but I think he makes some really solid points yeah. there for for why we need to be lazy. Um, yeah. So one of the things is he says, yeah, idleness is not just a vacation, an indulgence or a vice. It's an indispensable, it's indispensable. It's as indispensable to the brain as vitamin D is to the body. And deprived of it, we suffer mental affliction as disfiguring as rickets. It is paradoxically necessary to getting any work done. And yeah, he gives a bunch of different reasons, three mm. three different reasons. So one is that downtime aids insight. The other is downtime helps recharge the energy needed to work deeply. And then the last one is the work that evening downtime replaces is not usually that important. I think interesting enough, what I thought about this and I was like, I actually practiced this uh, without having to, having named it. But when I was reading through it, I was like, oh, this is actually something. That I think for me, it came about during lockdown. I mm. think I, I had to be very intentional about this. Uh, where, And I think so often when the mind, the power of just walking away from a problem and coming back with a different viewpoint. Yeah. Mm. And I think, uh, and the one is also the, the whole, the discipline of when I knock off, I'm done. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah, I think that's vital. Um, yeah. I just wanted to add that, yeah. Because mm. he has that shutdown ritual. Mm. Like where he says, and he often talks about, I think he's got a podcast where he chats about every now and again his shutdown ritual. And he mentions it that he's got this silly thing that he says at the end of the day. So he wraps up all his tasks. He makes sure that everything is allocated to a certain mm. certain time slot so that he doesn't have to think about it once he, he knocks off for the day. Um, and then he, he says the words, shut down complete. Mm. And the reason why he does that is because it's a signal to his brain mm. to be like, I am done, done now yeah. with the work day. Mm. I can now move on to other things. And that's not to say he doesn't do other productive mm. things. It's just that his work day is done. done. Um, he still reads and mm. does a bunch of different things. I don't know if he writes in the evenings, but um, yeah. Mm. Okay. Should we go on to rule two? Yeah. Embracing boredom. Um, yeah. He, the, one of the things for this chapter is embracing boredom, boredom helps to sharpen focus. So it goes back to that idea that we discussed earlier. The ability to con concentrate intensely is a skill that must be trained. Yeah. If we don't actually work on our ability to concentrate, we will not be good at yeah. concentrating. <laughs> Surprise. Um, yeah. I think, I don't know if you've had this experience as well, but my ability to read, like I'm not a great reader, mm. um, but I used to be a really terrible reader. Yeah, no, same. <laughs> and like over the last um, couple of years, especially probably the last few months, my ability to read has gone up drastically. Mm. Not because I'm just suddenly become a magical person or something, but 
literally because I'm trying to train this girl. So. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's those deadlines, I think. Mm. We have a deadline and it's like, I need to have the strength by then. You yeah. know, so we, yeah. Um, mm. <laughs> the discipline, you know, um, even though it's quiet and everything, we have to muscle through because of the greater good. Yeah, <laughs> the greater good. And <laughs> yeah. um, should we look at those strategies for yeah. for how you can go about embracing yeah. boredom? Okay, so one of the strategies, sounds strange at, the, at first, is don't take breaks from distraction. Instead, take breaks from focus. Um I felt like that was, the way he put it was, um, not not that I have anything wrong. To me, I thought that was something that could come naturally to people. It was was interesting that people need a reminder of that, you know. Mm, I I think the thing there is that maybe if we ask ourselves, what is our default to do? And our default is just we plan to have stretches of nothingness and then we watch Netflix or do things like that. And we don't normally do it the other way around Mm. where we plan to, just to use the reading example, Mm. we plan to read and then we say um, in the the time, in this time I'm going to watch Netflix and then the rest of the time, I'm going to be doing something productive okay. like reading or, or something like that. We we normally just are like, I'll just, whatever happens, happens yeah. kind of thing. I think maybe, again, that's what I'm saying. It's maybe how, I don't even know how, but somehow my, my schedule kind of <laughs> worked the other way around. So uh, to me, that's that's normal. That's why when I read it, mm. I was like, I th- I thought this was pretty normal. That's why I actually brought it up now because when I look at my week, everything is. I, I'm I've gotten bad. I'm not as great now, but let's say for the past six months or even before that, I'm very good at saying I can't do this because of X Y Z. Mm. So like my plans revolve around things that require my focus or let me say things that I feel are important. Mm. So my leisure time isn't, it's it's not like, oh, I'll chill with James, then I'll work. It's more like, when can I chill with James? Mm. I need to find, you know, the, the best time. Like, for instance, like, how my week is set up, and this has been for poet the last two years. It's like Monday was my free day. Tuesdays, I have like a standing commitment at church, and then on um, before, like years before, on Wednesday I had another commitment, and then Thursday I had a commitment that comes once a month. And then Friday was like my free day, and then we used to have book club on Saturdays. Mm. So I would plan everything around, and then Sunday church. Mm. So I'd plan everything around my life around that step thing. You see, it's it's only now when I've become more spontaneous when it comes <laughs> to doing things. But I think without Phil, I have 
standing commitment. Like, I mean, now, like, since this year we swapped it, it's Monday and off effect. We have to jump on a call, mm. which we try to almost always jump in unless yeah. something comes up. Tuesday, same church commitment. Wednesday is now my free day. Thursday, one commitment once a month. Fridays, my other free day. But again, it's like then once every month we meet on a Saturday mm. morning. <laughs> yeah. My plans have to sort of revolve around that. That's just how I've always worked. I think I'm somewhat similar. Mm. I think we're my sort of um, not planning for breaks is sort of falls down is so on the on the high level i'm able to do that because my Mm. months and my things like that are kind of roughly set set. and even to a day level granularity Mm. it's kind of set in terms of the work day and stuff Mm. like that and then i have sort of regular commitments Mm. throughout the week but there are the massive chunks of time like, say, for example, this afternoon. Mm. After this, mm. like, we've scheduled this, and I knew that this morning I was going to do some prep stuff, and then we were going to do this recording, and then after this, I've got to do some wedding stuff, and then after that, after that, basically, is a free-for-all. Mm. And that time is most likely when I'll randomly watch four mm. hours of YouTube, and I'll um, then later in the evening probably watch some like Netflix mm. movie or something mm. with Jamie or, and that's sort of fine mm. because I'm not trying to like squeeze the productivity out of mm. every day. But if I look at that time and I say, I don't have enough time to do this X, Y, Z thing that I find very valuable. I must be careful because that's almost definitely not true mm. because the reality is will spend a ton of time doing things mm. that and, well, that aren't actually sort of mm. productive, but I'll feel like I don't have any any time. Again, not to say that every single moment of yeah. every time should be should be productive. Yeah, sorry to take, I just yeah, <laughs> that one was like yeah, no, it's a, <laughs> it is it is an interesting one, mm. I, and it's hard to sort of wrap your head around. Mm. I think, um, but the the last point on that is probably that thinking about scheduling in advance when you'll use the internet is a helpful sort of going back to yeah when do i when do i use that where's our default is just to sort of use it whenever um okay so again still on the strategies for embracing boredom the other one is working like teddy roosevelt and that's just he was very focused in summary (laughs) uh then another one that i liked is meditate productively um i think most of the time, if we say, for example, we go for a walk or we do something like that, we we will just sort of do whatever. Mm. Um, but you can go for a walk and think through carefully a problem that you're trying to solve. Yeah. And, mm. and I think that's what he's getting at with meditate productively. Mm. Don't just sort of allow your brain to wonder mm. doing random things if you if you do want to actually mm. make progress on something productive if you want to just wonder I should say well. um, could have been second year on university I had this this rule for myself which was weird though but after, after every test I'd walk home 
and and my thought for this was by the time I get home I would have unpacked everything that sort of I struggled with in the test and why not but that by the time I get home all that's behind me and then I'm like back to like normal living mm. so, so like I feel like that was very helpful because when I get home like I wouldn't dwell on that anymore. So it would be like, okay, I need to make supper, whatnot, or do an assignment, then tomorrow's another day. But it was like one thing, and I mean, that walk would take me 30 to 45 minutes. So it was like, I would unpack everything. Mm. And by the time I get home, it's like, everything I've dealt with, you know, and it's like, boom, my mm. energy is back to, to normal, mm. you know? So, yeah, I think it is important to do that and I think I think it's something that I I I should get back into and um, I think I've seen that this year hiking helps me do that Mm. um, which I haven't done in weeks but I really want to go for a hike soon Um, and yeah um, I think before it was walking by the beach in the morning you know, like it was a thing for me on a Saturday morning. I'd wake up, go see the sunrise, and do that. Like just think through back on the week, and you know, prep myself mentally for the following week. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's it's something I'd encourage people to do. Um, yeah, I think it's something I've practiced before, and I think I've just taken a step back at the moment. But yeah, it, it does work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, even if I could just get back into walking, I think that would be a great first step. <laughs> yeah. uh, never mind the productive walking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, then the long strategy for embracing boredom that he puts here is to memorize a deck of cards, mm. which seems very strange. Mm. Um, but to memorize a deck of cards seems like or it is an incredible feat but it Mm. seems like an amazing feat because you like how can you brute force memorize a bunch of cards but to realize that our spatial memory is remarkable yeah and to start to focus on making use of that spatial memory is something that if we're able to do that then you can do quite incredible Mm. things like memorize a deck of cards um and the the example that they use is you basically learn your walking through your house very carefully and then you start to visualize placing different things like famous characters or something like that around the room five rooms then big objects yes big objects and then you add another two because there are 52 cards in a deck Mm. (laughs) then they have it (laughs) and and if you're able to do that, you start, you you can start training your brain to place these figures in in your house, and you walk through, and you can start to see them, mm. and it becomes it's a trick to be able to memorize things a lot more efficiently, mm. especially things like decks of cards and mm. things. But you can use it for for a bunch of different things. Mm. But the the fascinating thing here is that, um. They did some research for this guy, Henry, um, from the memory lab at the University of Washington. 
did some research on those memory athletes, the ones who are able to memorize those decks of cards and things, and they compete in these memory competitions. And he says, this is on page 175, he says, we found that one of the biggest differences between memory athletes and the rest of us is in the cognit- is in a cognitive ability that's not a direct measure of memory at all, but of attention. So memory athlete- athletes, it's actually got less to do with their ability to memorize and more their ability to have extremely good attention. And so they've seemingly, by doing things like training the walking through the house and all of that, they have trained their ability to hone attention when they need. Mm. And that that ties back to, I think, deep work and also the idea of what we pay attention to is what our world becomes and what is meaningful. Um, And so I think the reason why he puts memorizing a deck of cards as one of the strategies for embracing boredom or for, for learning to embrace boredom is that if you're able to do something like that, you're able to focus more on things that are important and in doing that you're able to hone your ability mm. to to work deeply um yeah those are the the different strategies i don't know if you have there's one other thing that i want to add but i don't no, know if no, you want to add so overall um given those four strategies they they'll help you to embrace boredom but i think one of the key things for me that we didn't touch on, but he does touch on in this, in this book, um, in this chapter, I think, is when you are just sitting on the couch and waiting for something, oh, yeah. or when you're standing in a queue or something like that, if you feel the urge to pull out your phone and... and I think it was in the next chapter, I think. Oh, okay. But yeah, but go on. If you, yeah, if you feel that urge to pull out your phone and and look at it, go onto Facebook, Twitter, Mm. some websites, even read a book Mm. um, to try and resist that urge. Because being able to resist that urge, even if it's just for five minutes, is something that builds your concentration and builds your ability to do deep work. And so it seems like it's something that it's not worthwhile, mm. but actually, uh, and it seems pointless, like, mm. oh, but I, I can actually quickly check this or mm. reply to this message or something. But in reality, you are, you're not doing your brain a favor yeah. because you're giving into a temptation. And by giving into that temptation, you when you actually want to focus and sit down and whether it's sit down to say in in Cal's case, write a a journal article, then if you haven't embraced boredom in those situations, Mm. when something happens and you get slightly bored or you get slightly stuck, you're going to end up being like, ah, let me look at Mm. my phone or let me watch a YouTube video because you haven't trained up that ability. I think 
just adding on it, Elliot talks about um, willpower being finite. Mm. I think it also ties in into that. Yes. Like, yeah. There's only so much will, and I think that was real reading that, and you know, I've always like, oh, I've, oh, let me rephrase that. I used to have, <laughs> you know, amazing willpower, not anymore. Mm. Um, but it makes sense now, you know, that the more distractions you expose yourself to, your willpower then bells to be like, okay, cool, like we give in. Yeah. You know, um and yeah, it's the same thing with when you on the couch or in a queue, you know, instead of you pulling out your phone for that distraction, be like, okay, no, let me be one with my thought, you know, and think through something, you know. That's more valuable as deep mm. work is, you know. Um, and again, like you said, you know, you're doing yourself a, fo- a favor by doing that rather than pulling out your phone. Mm. Yeah. Embrace that boredom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Next is rule three, quitting social media. Um, he touches on, on two different ideas. The one is the um, any benefit approach to tool se- selection and the other is the craftsman approach to tool selection. So the part of this chapter is to say, don't fall into the any benefit approach to tool selection, especially when it comes to network tool selection. Rather take the craftsman approach. Um, I'll quickly try and see if I can find, I think it's on 186. Yeah, do you want to read it? No, um, So the any benefit approach to network tool selection is you're justified in using a network tool if you can identify any possible benefit to use it or anything uh, you might possibly miss out on if you don't use it. And then he goes on just under that to say, the problem with this approach, of course, is that it ignores all the negatives that are come that come along with tool those tools in question. These services are engineered to be addictive, robbing time and attention from the activities that more directly support your professional and personal goals. Um, yeah, so we think. Uh, I think he says there's somewhere along the lines where he says value is value, right? Um, and. The reality is no, (laughs) value is not value. There are some things that are more valuable than others and you should be choosing the things that are more valuable than others. Um, I think, uh, just uh, sorry to... It it was interesting, you know, that whenever we say benefit from something, you know, we tend to be biased and ignore the negatives. I think Mm. that's what he was getting at with... um, that point, you know, say, um, like for instance, uh, the one was like, oh, it's because I wanted to see entertaining things posted by my friends. It's like, okay, cool, but before that, like, when you receiving entertaining content through other means, mm. <laughs> you know, like, why specific to that? And you know, mm. like, but you're forgetting about what else, um, this platform is robbing you. You know, so it's like it's. Yeah, it's very easy to create biases in our brains. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's just what I wanted to say. Yeah, I think um, I think we don't think through our 
use of things, well, we very mm. easily fall into that any mm. benefit approach. Mm. If there's a benefit, I'll take I'll it. I'll take it, yeah. Um, but what Cal is saying in this chapter is don't use that. Rather, do use the craftsman mm. approach. So I'll quickly read that on mm. page 191. The craftsman approach to tool selection. Identify the core factors that determine success and happiness in your personal and professional life. Adopt a tool only if its positive impacts on these factors substantially outweigh its negative impacts. Um, yeah, I think there's a, a really helpful um, sort of story that he gives with oh. the haymaking. Um, so he, he interviews this guy in his local farmer's market when it comes to um, haymaking. And the guy gives a very good breakdown of how he how he chooses between either producing the hay, making the hay mm. on his farm himself or with his, his workers and stuff, or alternatively to buy the hay in. And he says, yeah, when Pritchard took over Smith's Meadows, so this is on, on 189, when Pritchard took over Smith's Meadows, he explained the farm made its own hay to use as animal feed during the winter months when grazing was impossible. Haymaking is done with a piece of equipment called a hay baler. Then a little bit further down, he says, why spend money to buy in feed when you have perfectly good grass growing for free right in your own soil? If a farmer subscribed to the any benefit approach used by knowledge workers, therefore, he would definitely buy a hay baler. Because obviously, mm. why not make it for free? <laughs> um, Pritchard, like most practi practitioners of his trade, which is farming, instead deploys a more sophisticated thought process when assessing tools. And after applying this process to the hay baler, Pritchard was quick to sell it. Smith Meadows now purchases all the hay it uses. Here's why. The cost of making hay... First, there's the actual cost of fuel and repairs and a shed to keep the baler. These directly measurable costs, however, are the easy part of the decision. It was instead the opportunity costs that required more attention. If I make hay all summer, I can't be doing anything else. For example, I now use that time instead to raise boilers, which are chickens meant for eating. These generate positive cash flow because I can sell them, but they also produce manure, which I can then use to enhance my soil. When I'm buying hay, I'm trading cash for animal protein as well as manure once it passes through the animal system, which means I'm also getting more nutrients for my lands in exchange for my money. I'm also avoiding compacting the soils by driving heavy machinery over the ground all summer long. When making his final decision on the baler, Pritchard moved past the direct monetary costs, which were essentially a wash, and instead shifted his attention to the more nuanced issue of the long-term health of his fields. And then he goes later. Cal goes on to say, "Of course, hay baler offers. Um, of course, a hay baler offers benefits. Every tool at a farm supply store has something useful to offer. At the same time, of course, it offers negatives as well. And then lastly." Carl says, I propose that if you're a knowledge worker, especially one interested in cultivating a deep work habit, you should treat your tool selections with the same level of care as other skilled workers, such as farmers. I call this the craftsman approach to tool selection.
So not falling for the any benefit approach. <laughs> um, and I think Pritchard's hay baler example is yeah mm. a very, very helpful one. Okay. Should we look at some of the strategies that are used for trying to quit social media? Mm. Okay, so there are four strat- three strategies. The one is apply the law of the vital few to your internet habits. So the law of the vital few is that in many settings, 80% of the given effects are due to 20% of the possible causes. Um, yeah, there's lots of different names for it. The 80-20 rule is often mm. a common one that it's referred to as. And Carl's just calling it the law of the vital few here. But um, he says, why abandon those tools that add little value? Value is value. Uh, the reason is that most the most important 20% of those activities provide the bulk of the benefit, but all activities, regardless of their importance, consume the same limited time and attention that you have. So, yeah, I think it's a good, yeah. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> it is. No, it's <laughs> straight to the point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, f- focus on the 20%. Don't get caught up. Almost choose the 20% of the tools that are valuable mm. and not... Don't get lost in all of the other things that sort of have a little bit of benefit, mm. but actually not providing real mm. benefit. Um, and then, uh, yeah, there's little things to for helping applying that law, um, but I'm not going to dig too deeply into those. The other um, strategy was to quit social media. Um, yeah, I think there's a few different things that he touches on there. Uh, I don't know if you want to dig into that a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, um, I didn't have much, but I think he also then says, um, there was somewhere where he mentions like, he understands how tough it is. You know, it's um, do not go for the extreme approach because I think the one guy did like 30 days Mm. or something of social media, but when he was back, it was like fusting, you know. Uh, I think it's more of... uh, I think he even went on to say one of it can be sitting aside times in which you have access to social media. Mm. You know, instead of going for code tech, you say like at such such times, you you know, don't go on social media or have like, um, is it called a social media suburb? Like have one day um, in a week where you don't use social media at all. Mm. Um yeah, um, I think so. So quitting. So I think for social media, mm. it's important to recognize that social media is just what he classifies as a network tool, mm. right? And so n- to try and figure out how you can cannot, as you alluding to, not spend unnecessary time on mm. it is important. And maybe just sorry to jump back to the law of the vital few. Some of the, the things that he says there in trying to apply that law are actually helpful as I'm, as I'm scanning mm. through them now. So he says here, there's like a three-step process that he goes through. The one is identify your high-level goals. So what are the things that you really find valuable? Then for each of those goals, list two or three activities mm. that help you satisfy mm. those goals. And then 
for each network tool that you use, decide whether it has a substantially positive impact, little impact, or substantially negative impact. Discard all the tools that don't have a substantially positive impact. Mm. So I think that's a hopeful thing to pl- apply to the, the quitting of social media. Yeah. So if you go through, uh, I think a great example that he uses, I'll paraphrase it because I, I don't know where it is, is um, being connected to people. Mm. If you want to be connected to people, people would often say, well, Facebook obviously would help with that, mm. right? But if you look at it and you start to break down what does it mean that I want to be connected mm. with people, one of the things, one of the activities that you might list, because remember it says identify high-level goals, so connect with people. Um, for each of those goals, list um, two or three activities that help you satisfy the goal. So maybe you say, well, spending time with people, um, helping people out that um, that I can can mm. help out. Um, and maybe those are your, your activities. If you look at Facebook, it doesn't help with that. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like it helps with the connection because yeah, I can connect to my friends that mm-hmm. I haven't seen in a while and stuff like that. But if you truly value that friendship, um, you'll be meeting them in person. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I think this is also something that you were sort of touching on of not taking just this approach of just cutting mm-hmm. everything off and saying, of course, Facebook is bad for everyone. Mm-hmm. He gives a very balanced approach. He says in general, Facebook isn't good, mm. right? It's distracting. It um, consumes attention. It's a very low-level, shallow stuff mm. that you, you're not getting the value that you think you're mm. getting. However, he says that there are cases, like uh, college students is the example that he uses, where you can imagine someone having a strong argument for Facebook being one of the tools that are actually very good. Mm. Because in college, you are connecting with different groups and connecting with people and stuff. That's a vital thing in college. Mm. And so fair enough, there's a case to be made there that Facebook in that situation is useful. But in a lot of other situations that we sort of fool ourselves Mm. into being like it's useful. So I think that's, yeah, part of that quitting social media. Yeah, and I think... uh there's also the part with uh, the, those two questions, you know, af- that you can ask yourself after like a uh, 30 day imposed isolation of social mm. media where it says, would the last 30 days have been not- notably better if I had been able to use this service? So like ask yourself that. Mm. And I think the second one I think is an interesting one and <laughs> which says do people care that I wasn't using this service mm. I think <clears throat> sorry um, that's one thing that people really need to ask themselves because people make a big fuss and I think it's all about I'll say that people are very self-centered and it's like me 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 mm-hmm. you know yeah. and half the time like People aren't even thinking about you. I think we need to be aware that out of sight is out of mind. If they're thinking about you, oh, great, or talking about you, great, but I don't think people talk about others as much as we let to believe. Mm-hmm. You know, so that is like people notice that I was interested in the service. If someone asks, then okay, maybe, but if no one asks, that means mm-hmm. the harsh reality is maybe you didn't make it 
difference mm. on social media, you know, so you're better off without it. Mm. So, yeah. Harsh, but possibly <clears throat> true, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, then the last strategy for quitting social media. Um, so, the, the first one, again, apply the law of the vital few. The second one, quit social media. Um, the third one, don't use the internet to entertain yourself. So, related to that is trying to say you can and should make deliberate use of your time outside of work. Um, there's a, a guy, Arnold Bennett, who I love. I, I think we must also read this book at some stage. Oh, okay. But he wrote the book, How to Live on 24 Hours a Day. And I just think it's just such a great title because it's a, it's just a, I don't know. It's just great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's in that book that um, he identifies the idea of a day within a day. Mm. So if you think about sort of your day in um, different chunks, and normally we just, we almost instinctively look at our work day and we mm. say that's our full mm. day. And after our work day is done, it's like, sure, mm. I get a tiny little bit of leisure time, but then it's back to work and mm. back to work and back to work. But if we do do what Cal is suggesting in which... I think both you and I highly suggest, mm. which is work your whatever it is, eight hour oh, day, yeah. nine hours if you include lunch, um, eight to five, five thirty ish, whatever. If you do that, you have a whole nother, what's it, 16 hours? Yeah. Well, it's yeah, 15, yeah. 16 hours, depends 16. if you include lunch or not. But, um, Six, oh, okay. 16 hours and then say say I mean the the mass ends up say you sleep 8 hours a day yeah. um, then you have 8 hours mm. like 8 hours is the day within a day mm. <laughs> and you he says 16 hours is the day within a day but um, yeah obviously we need to sleep mm. but I don't think we put much thought into that leisure time mm. and we should mm. Because there's so much that we can do. Yeah. It doesn't have to be specifically productive in terms of producing output. It can just be productive in terms of spending quality time with people you care about mm. or helping in the ways that you find or have identified as meaningful or reading things that you care about. Or it can be any upskilling in a way that you yeah. are interested in. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, I think we, we should do that. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. There's, there's another um, idea related to that, which is just the, for the planning your your free time. And Cal touches on this. If you plan your free time, people are often worried that then I'm not going to have any free time, mm. and I'm going to feel super drained and like burnt out and stuff. In reality, um, you don't have to worry about that. Mm. It turns out that if you do continuous deep work in different ways, um, okay, we have a limit to the amount of deep work, but in terms of if you just continuously are doing things and you've planned out your day and mm. stuff, it's not tiring yeah. as long as you are doing things that you're interested mm. in. Um, and Bennett touches on this as well. He says, yeah. On page 214, this is a quote from, from his book. One of the chief things which my typical man has to learn, this is written in the 1900s, I think. 
one of the t- chief things that my typical man has to learn is that the mental faculties are capable of continuous hard work activity or continuous hard activity. They do not tire like an arm or a leg. All they want is change, not rest except in sleep. So, yeah. Helpful. Mm. Okay. Should we go on to the next rule? Yeah. The last and final one. Drain the shallows. Mm. So, yeah, this one is the one where they do that uh, four-day work week experiment that you, you mentioned earlier. Okay. So, do you want to maybe go through that and explain sort of roughly how they... <coughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, the idea was, um, <coughs> I think the company was uh, 37 Signals. Yeah, um, yeah now called Basecamp. <coughs> I decided to... I don't know, were they the first ones? Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure either. They kind of said as if they were the first, but I know it's been adopted in a few countries. I moment. think it's becoming more popular nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Um, but essentially it was... Instead of um, working the f- five day week work week, you know, reducing that to four, mm. um, and how that had its its benefits, and um, but the argument was that people actually, it's it's not that it had its benefits. People just had more leisure time, but actually were able to complete their. F- the, same amount, of the work. same amount of work in four days. Yeah, and it's um, not that they increased the time. It's not that they crammed five hours, five days worth of hours into four days. Four days, but yeah, they just somehow achieved the same amount of work. And mm. <coughs> sorry, it uh, later says that what actually happens is that people then tend to minimize their time time consuming stuff or rather the shallow the shallow, shallow yeah. work. Um so instead of spending long hours while making their coffee, you know, they actually make that trip and in and out and then spend more time on work because a blogger then attacked the one of the company to say, how do you expect people to then work um what's it like ten to twelve hours mm. um in a day, but his argument was that people actually accomplished what they needed in the four days mm. without having to go outside um, the eight hours. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They actually, managed to do it just by reducing Same the shallow work. work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an important yeah. concept because I mean it's the same as us. I think the first few books that we read we read over a period of months and now we sort of gave ourselves this timeline of trying to do a book a month Mm. and like for the most part okay sometimes a little bit of a struggle and Mm. and that but for the most part we managed to get through and now we've read this is the fifth one yeah um whereas i think the one of the books we took like a year or something um yeah but that's Atomic Habits took us close to here, yeah because we did Atomic Habits and 4,000 words. Yeah, yeah 4,000 weeks. I mean, no, f- yeah, yeah 4,000 weeks. weeks. In like a year and some yeah. change. And then since then we've done, yeah, five books. Yeah. Have we done five? Yes, this is the fifth one, yeah. What was the first one? 
attached. Attached. Then I don't remember the exact order. I think it's like attached, effortless, a psychology of money, black box thinking, thinking, and then deep work. work. Crazy. Yeah. I still I cheated with black box thinking. (laughs) You need to to forgive yourself. I need to forgive myself for that. (laughs) This one I was close. I was on the fence. Yeah, I will finish it like in the next day or two. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I need to really go back to black uh, black box thinking. Mm. But yeah, no, I agree with you that what we thought we couldn't achieve because we're doing a chapter a day Mm. to then realize that some books required us to do three chapters a week, which is like three times more work than we're used to. Yeah. um, It's crazy. I think it's just a mindset shift. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And in doing that, I mean, I think it's the same thing that they found with this four-day work week is the quality of the work that you produce or to put it differently in our case, the ability to read a book goes up Mm. um for them the quality of the work probably went up because you're condensing that that work into a shorter Mm. period of time and you you need to focus more and that it's not fragmented Mm. in pieces because it takes us a bit of time to get back into that context i think it was in effortless that it spoke about that idea of of using that flow state and that because it takes, is it an effortless or black box thinking? That, but essentially the idea of um, residual attention. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we have residual. Effortless, yeah. Yeah, we have residual attention on these other things mm. that when we move on to the next task, that res- still, residual attention is still there yeah. unless we manage to either complete the okay. task or do something. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it was one of. It was one of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we read it somewhere. <laughs> um, it's in our brains. <laughs> yeah, that's what matters. That's what matters. <laughs> but yeah, um, and and in terms of this chapter, that draining the shallows doesn't mean draining absolutely every single shallow task because some activities we actually do need to do. So a normal office job, for example, mm. you'll need to respond to emails and and do all that kind of stuff. But the key is to not let that shallow work dominate your overall uh, work life. Mm. Um, okay. Should we dig into the strategies for yeah. draining the shallows? Yeah, we can quickly go through those. Let's do it. Okay. So scheduling every... M- so I'll, I'll quickly read them and then we can chat through them. Yeah. So the first one is scheduling every minute of your day. The second one is quantifying depth of every activity. The third one is ask your boss for a shallow budget. The fourth is finish your work by 5.30. And the fifth is become hard to reach. Mm. So scheduling every minute of your day. Um, I think to quickly dig into that. So it's important to note that the scheduling, um, when you schedule those items throughout the day, what Cal is not saying is, Schedule every minute of your day and then stick to that and don't let it ever change throughout that day. His goal is not to have a perfect unchanging schedule because life will happen and will make you very frustrated when life changes the course of that day. But the goal is rather to just be purposeful about your time. So when something is genuinely urgent and it comes up that wasn't in the schedule or if you get into a state of flow on something that's actually very important 
even though it wasn't planned, that's completely fine. Mm. You can tackle it and then you can move on in the next convenient moment to replan the rest of that day. Mm. Again, not to force that day into that schedule, but to rather say, I've thought about what this day is going to, what I'm going to try and do this day and just be more purposeful with, with your time. Um, I want to very quickly look at this page um, uh, 221 because there's, I just think it's a great, um, great example of how um, almost to put it negatively clueless we are <laughs> about the amount of time that we spend doing shallow yeah. things. So um, it says here, in 2013, a British TV licensing authority surveyed television watchers about their habits. 25 to 34-year-olds taking the survey estimated that they spend somewhere between 15 and 16 hours per week watching TV. This sounds like a lot, but actually it's a significant underestimate. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes on to say at the bottom... The 25 to 34-year-olds who thought that they watched 15 hours a week, it turns out, watch more like 28 hours a week. <laughs> so that's the one thing that's interesting. And then they, they go on to say further down, a survey by the National Sleep Foundation revealed that Americans think that they're sleeping on average somewhere around seven hours a night. The American Time um, Use Survey watch has people actually measure their deep sleep um, measure their sleep and they corrected this number to 8.6 hours another study found that people who claim to work 60 um, to 64 hours per week were actually averaging more like 44 hours per week so i think the the idea that he's getting there is we drastically uh over i mean um, underestimate or overestimate depending on if it's a good or a bad thing um, the the amount of time we spend on various things and if you schedule your day what it does is two things one it allows your day to become purposeful which allows you to um, more likely fall into the deep work and drain the shallows but um, also it allows you to actually start gauging more accurately the amount of time you spend on things and how long various things mm. take. Um, yeah. Cool. I don't know if you want, want to add anything else. No, no, just the point that you made is quite interesting that you make it there purposeful. Like, yeah. That's such a very vital. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, everyone's always out here to say they're looking for their purpose. So if you actually make it different, <laughs> yeah, just, like, just write it into your calendar. Just, <laughs> write you your know. purpose down. Mm, mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think I really like that idea of scheduling, not for the sake of this is exactly what I'm going to do, but to, to, gui um, to sort of guide your mm. day. Uh, yeah. Okay. Quantifying the depth of every activity is the another strategy. So this is actually a very difficult thing to do, but Cal comes up with a genius way of um, quantifying uh, of he, he has the sent this question that allows you to easily get at 
is this a valuable activity or not? And his question on, on page 229 is this. How long would it take in months to train a smart college graduate with no specialized training in my field to complete this task? And if you ask yourself that question, it helps cut through, is this or is it not oh. something that is valuable? And remember in the background of, of your mind should be valuable is talking about something where you can contribute meaningfully because of skill sets that you've developed mm. over time. And so the college professor who is very specialized and knows a lot about a certain topic and needs to lecture on a topic, that is something that he can provide a lot of value in mm. and would likely be considered deep work. Or writing an article... A professor writing an article that would likely be considered deep work, but replying to emails um, very often is not deep work. Mm. It can be, mm. but very often it's not. Um, and even the one interesting uh, sort of example that feels initially like it straddles the line, but then you realize it actually doesn't, is um, preparing a PowerPoint, like a budget mm. PowerPoint presentation for your maybe your strat meeting or something like that. And you would think that that's a valuable activity. And it's, of course, valuable in some sense, mm. but it's it most likely shouldn't be classified mm. under deep work because with a month or two of, of training... Uh, I mean, the information already exists. It's just Yeah, it's just sort of grouping it and displaying it in certain charts and things. And with a little bit of training someone who is a college level, a smart mm. sort of willing person should be able to, to pick that up. Um, yeah. Ask your boss for shallow budget. Um, I don't think there's too much to, to discuss there. It's just basically the key idea there is trying to say what percentage of my time should I spend on shallow work? And Cal suggests probably for most people around 30 to 50 percent if you're spending more than 50 percent i mean it probably would be a very frustrating mm. time in any case but also there's like this perception of of from your boss you they'd be like why are you just spending all your time doing mm. doing this sort of wasteful work but at the same time um most of the time we probably spend more than that um, doing shallow work, but we just don't realize it. Yeah. And if you can sort of get your boss on the same page as you as saying, okay, deep work is actually important. Yeah. Um, then it helps you justify why you not going to attend this meeting or why you doing X, Y, Z. Okay. Then the last two. So finish your work by five thirty. I think we kind of, discuss this yes, yeah. uh, a fair bit but one of the things that is he makes a point of here is to work backwards to find pro productivity strategies that allow him to satisfy th this declaration mm. so he says i'm gonna work in this time that's when i end mm. and then because of that you can work backwards to squeeze everything in yeah um and it also i can't remember what the idea is but there's some idea where um, if you 
you're given a certain amount of time, then you, yeah, if you force those limits, mm. you more likely will accomplish the things in those mm. limits. I'm just, uh, I mean, there's the other idea of you normally go over budget, but it's like force yeah. deadlines. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then the last one is becoming hard to reach. I don't know that that applies to to a lot of obviously it it, uh, it okay maybe I'll, I'll walk through it and because it does apply um the but the general idea is for becoming hard to reach is making people who send you emails do more work mm. by and there's various different ways of doing that but the point is to get only valuable emails and not emails that just take a lot of time but they're actually kind of nonsense um and the other tip is um, that when you send an email, and this is something that you mentioned earlier, do work before sending the email. Try and make it so he gives the examples of even if it's just simple things like scheduling. If someone says, let's grab coffee, mm. don't just be like, okay, cool, because then it will take a while and back a bunch okay, of back and forth. Be like, okay, cool, let's grab a coffee next week, mm, Tuesday, between 4 and 5. And if that doesn't work, I can also do for, um, mm. uh, Thursday at 8 o'clock. Mm. Yeah. But to try and put in a little bit of extra effort yeah. or to group ideas and add everything you know about in that email and give context mm. to things to make it easier. Um, yeah. Then he gives another tip which is just don't respond don't which respond. i think for uh at least for me at this point in my career and life i don't don't think is a viable option um but it depends on who the sunday is yeah i suppose that's true <laughs> yeah no that's true um yeah then the conclusion chapter so he he gives one of the things that he says is deep work is way more powerful than most people understand. Mm. And it's pretty much as straightforward as that. Um, yeah. Deep work is valuable yeah. and it's meaningful. So why not just do it? Yeah. I agree. You have any concluding thoughts, Peter? I know. Um, Nothing specific, just to say, grab yourself your co- a copy if what, mm. we, what we said uh, didn't uh, put the point across. But um, no, I think there's a few things I actually want to actually adopt, you know, actually mm. try to rethink how I do certain things currently uh, and incorporate some of the tips and strategies that we mentioned in the book. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me want to more purposefully do deep work. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it was just a reminder of how far I've come in terms of <laughs> how much I used to concentrate on stuff. Mm. You know? Um, yeah. Um, I think... I kind of identify a lot of distractions. Some that I eliminated at some point, but seem to make their way back. Um, but yeah, I think, again, like you said, you know, it's, it gives purpose to life. 
um, when you're actually doing things that are meaningful. Mm. You know, and I think, as it was mentioned, deep work will help you become better at your craft. Mm. You know, I think those are just certain things just for myself I want to accomplish. You know, be better at what I do at this time next year. You know, mm. and I think including deep work in what I do can help me achieve that. Um, yeah. Mm, yeah, that's that's just my concluding thoughts. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And you? I think for me, it's highlighting again just how distracted mm. the current world is. Mm. And I mean, even in, what's that guy, Bennett, that I like his book title name, the um, even in his time, people's spare time was very fractured and they didn't do things that, that um, would fall under the category of deep work. Um, and, and now it's probably even more so like that because of all of these social media network tools. Um, and with that in mind, those tools can be helpful in certain circumstances, but for the most part, the way that that we use them, um, for many people that would be Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. For me, it would be YouTube, uh, even though it's not a network tool directly. They can be useful, but they're so devastating on the way that we use our time and our focus um, and we think that in the moment it's the thing that's going to make us happy. We, it's like that lying in the hammock thing. We think that that's the thing that's going to make us happy because it's almost what we told. Um, but then when you really look at it as Mi to accept me high and and then started to realize that flow getting into that that deep work state that is actually when we really see meaning um and those are the meaningful things and so for me i think trying to to rather schedule that time for when i spend on youtube in my case for other people when they spend on time on Instagram, etc. Scheduling that time and saying, I'm going to spend, it doesn't matter how long, it can be five hours if you want, or it can be half an hour. Um, but scheduling that time, rather than allowing that to just be the default thing that we fall into, and saying that the default thing that one does is deep work of various nature, um, and I'm losing, using that word loosely because deep work can be in, in the way that I'm using it. It can be spending time with friends, mm. just good quality time with friends, uh, or it can be writing. It can be reading. It can be, um, even, um, playing a game. If that's the thing that you want to become really mm. good at for some reason, um, 
doing that deep work is is something that I'd like to to be able to be better at. Um, yeah, and then I think I'd probably close off with the thing that Cal references a few times, and I think he closes off with, which is um, the Winfred Gallagher quote. I live the focused life because it's the best kind there is. Mm. And yeah, mm. I think that's it. Cool. Cool. Thanks, James. Thanks, Peter. We'll chat again. Cool.